to shelter and solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, live streaming and Zooming with you here uh, on Facebook, on YouTube, and here on Zoom for our live audience here in our sixth, seventh, week, uh, seventh month now of this COVID pandemic, as we are, we are now over 30 shows here on Shelter and Solidarity in our twice a month format. The topic for tonight's show is what just happened, election day and next steps for the left. Looking at where we're actually at this week, we might um, adapt that title a little bit and say not what just happened, but what is happening, election week and next steps for the left. I don't plan to, and I doubt I need to summarize, if I could, uh, the statistical moment that we're in and the current uh, situation regarding the exact counts in this state and that state and what it means for the presidential election and for many other elections around the country. I'm sure many of you, for better and for worse, have been uh, exhausted by following these various feeds in various formats over the last few days. I know I was up till about 5 a.m. for, you know, um, and exhausted on Wednesday as a result of Tuesday night's craziness. But thankfully, we have four terrific guests with us tonight to not only address the current state of this election in that sense, but to probe deeper into what this election, um, this unfolding election means, what is being revealed in this moment, um, and particularly the, the important discussion of what it means for those of us on the left committed to truly transformative change inside and outside that electoral system. I'm gonna cut right to introducing our guests very briefly and give them each about five minutes to make some opening comments. Around an hour into our show, as always on Shelter and Solidarity, we will welcome you, our live Zoom audience and those on Facebook to participate in the discussion with questions, comments you may have based on what you're hearing and seeing. Uh, feel free to use that chat box here on Zoom to let us know you have a comment or question you'd like to be put in the queue. We'll also be fortunate uh, to have a musical interlude around the hour mark to transition between our presentations and our, in our panel discussion and our broader discussion. In the order that I'm going to introduce them right now, we will be hearing from first Dr. Jill Stein, familiar to many of you, I'm sure, 
among for among other reasons, being the presidential candidate of the Green Party in both 2012 and 2016. Thank you, Jill, for being here with us on Shelter and Solidarity. My pleasure. Great. And as always, we know here on Shelter and Solidarity, we can only, in, in the Zoom world, we can only see people when we hear them. And the reverse is also true. Uh, if we can hear you, we will see you. So please, to our live guests, do keep uh, your, your mics muted unless you do plan to speak. Our second speaker will be Liza Featherstone, uh, who is a contributing editor at The Nation magazine, as well as a frequent contributor to Jacobin. Uh, haven't seen you in person in a long time. I guess this passes for in person now. It was a conference years and years ago with the right old MLG uh, back yes, in the day. Yes. Um, I'm so glad to have you on the on the show, Eliza. Thanks yes, for being here. Nice to see you. Great. Uh, after Jill and Liza, we'll have Ben Mansky returning to Shelter and Solidarity. Uh, ben is a professor of sociology at George Mason University, as well as the founder of Liberty Tree Foundation for the Democratic Revolution, among other pro-democracy and social change organizations. Ben, welcome back. That's great to be here, good evening. Terrific, so glad to have you for this topic, among others. Finally, we have joining us today, in place of Jabari Brisport, the newly elected DSA member, uh, on the now a member of the New York State Senate. Unfortunately, Jabari had a, a last minute conflict that came up. Uh, we heard from his campaign staff, uh, understandably, is a newly elected member of the government, has some other uh, prevailing uh, you know, obligations. But we have, thankfully, on, on a last minute note, the, the committed uh, solidarity of David Duhalde. Uh, David, feel free to correct my pronunciation of your name if I have screwed it up on this last minute swap. But we have here with David, the vice chair of the DSA, the Democrat Socialists of America Fund, the 501 uh, you know, uh, nonprofit organization of the DSA uh, and a longtime socialist activist. So David, thank you for being here as well. Thank you for the invitation. Great. So back to Jill and we'll go in the order we just introduced you all. Just Jill, I just wanna ask you and, and the same question will go to the, to the rest of our guests in order. You know, what are you seeing in this moment? You know, what is your read on this moment that we are in, uh, this election that is, you know, seems never to end that we are in the midst of? Uh, what stands out to you from this uh, this uh, election moment as particularly significant? What in this situation do you think we need to highlight? And in particular, what do you think the left needs to be paying attention to and, and thinking about doing coming out of this situation as it's being kind of crystallized in this election post this protracted, not yet post-election moment? Jill? Yeah, so thank you very much, Joe, um, for convening this discussion. It feels like it's a really important time for us to um, assert, affirm our community and to do a reality check. This is such a profoundly tragic moment. Um, to me, it merely confirms um, the very unfortunate reality that we're dealing with. That is essentially, um, you know, a democracy on life support in more ways than we could have imagined where a con contrived and concocted uh, campaign on the part of the Democrats has, you know, not completely failed. It looks like Joe Biden is going to squeak out 
a victory, but it will be an extremely paralyzed victory uh, without, without the Senate. Uh, it, it essentially ensures that Joe Biden can keep his promise to Wall Street that nothing will change and he'll have the excuse of being able to blame it on divided government. But you know, I think we've seen how incredibly anemic and uh, pathetic <clears throat> the uh, prevailing Democratic Party establishment is uh, in the face of uh, the abuses, the tyranny, the uh, right-wing extremism, the neo-fascism uh, of the Trump administration. It's shocking to see that Donald Trump is getting more votes than he did uh, in the last election, but I think it's really important to remember as against what, you know, over 63% of Biden's supporters were not for Biden. They, uh, they were essentially against Trump. There really was nothing to be for. And what might have been a landslide behind uh, Bernie Sanders was essentially uh, thrown under the bus here. So, you know, to my mind, this is inseparable from the fact of a, uh, an empire, really end stage empire, which is inconsistent with democracy at home as well. And we're in this, you know, intensive moment now, right now, this revived uh, Cold War, uh, this revived neo-McCarthyism with a war on independent politics, uh, censorship, warmongering um, and political repression. So it, we've got our work cut out for us, but let me say at the same time, we're in the midst of, of vibrant social movements, which are, you know, even in the face of COVID are thriving with uh, record numbers of millions of people out in the streets to combat police violence and white supremacy and the Extinction Rebellion and the student climate movement, uh, a brewing movement uh, for housing security in the face of a tsunami of evictions, which is on the way. And, you know, Joe Biden's administration or some of his spokespeople at any rate have essentially assured us that they will not do a major bailout. They are not going to do what is necessary. So I think we can be quite confident that the uh, uprising, which is already in full swing, is going to be magnified probably beyond anything that we have seen in our lives. Uh, probably, you know, the crisis we're facing is going to be uh, as bad, perhaps worse as the Great Depression. So, you know, I think we can uh, be confident that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Uh, the movement here, the social rebellion and the economic rebellion is going to be absolutely unstoppable. It needs a political context and a political home. Um, I think it's very important for us to cooperate and collaborate as true progressives. And I must say that I think uh, the fact of the war and empire is kind of a litmus test for uh, true, you know, a, a true progressive agenda. And where that's absent, you know, I think we really don't have um, the, uh, you know, the 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 momentum and the analysis to deal with what faces us. 
uh, I think it's very important for us to be able to speak out, you know, against really the triad that Martin Luther, Luther King identified of racism, militarism, and extreme materialism, aka uh, capitalism. They are joined at the hip. There are movements to fight them all, which are going strong right now, and they need a political home. I think ranked choice voting, which I hope we'll come to later, gives us an opportunity to collaborate without having to get stuck in the endless debate about um, you know, uh, party labels. I think people of good um, you know, uh, conscience and integrity can collaborate across party lines. You know, even with this record turnout, which I think is somewhere around 62 or 3, 63%, it is still small in the scheme of things. And the largest plurality of voters are still those who choose not to come out on behalf of either a Joe Biden or a Donald Trump or either of the corporate political parties that are uh, constraining them. So hands down, the winner here is uh, Raytheon. The winner is, um, uh, it is Wall Street. Uh, it is the usual suspects, but I'd say, remember the words of Alice Walker, that the biggest way people give up power is by not knowing we have it to start with. We have it, though it's really scattered. It is silenced. The means of communication are firmly in the stranglehold of, uh, of corporate America, corporate media, uh, the uh, corporate big tech, and so on. But the rebellion will not be stopped. And I think it's, it's uh, in our hands for how we move forward with this. I think the, uh, the political establishment is biting the dust before our very eyes right now. It will be paralyzed for the coming four years uh, for a whole variety of reasons. So, you know, hold on to your hats. We got a job to do. Thank you so much, Jill. Some really striking language. I mean, you can tell, you can hear the doctor in, in, in Jill's politics too. I mean, a paralyzed <laughs> victory right, for, for Joe Biden without the Senate, right? Democracy on life support, um, the end stage uh, of an empire and its incompatibility with democracy, even at home, really powerful phrases I hope we can, we can dig into as we go. Uh, let's go next to Liza, Liza Featherstone, um, also a DSA member, as well as a Jacobin staff writer, nation contributing writer and editor. Um, so what's your take on this moment we're in, uh, Liza? Well, um you know, I, I share um, I share Jill's um, disgust with the corporate Democrats and the um, you know neo-fascist Republicans, um, and also her excitement about the uh, the uprisings that we're, we've been seeing all year. Um, and I guess um, I wanted to um, reflect a little bit on um, the ways that. Um, the, the ways that people really did um, in a lot of places make their um, distinct um, longing for a better world clear. A better world was not really on the menu on the presidential election, right? Um, the, um, what the, the election was really between um, Trump and not Trump, right? I mean, it was it was between um, a a powerful right wing movement with a lot of um, disinformation, <clears throat> um, a, a vast disinformation machine, 
Um, and um, a large and um, I think we're um, allowed to um, let ourselves hope um, larger body of people who wished to stop that right-wing movement, wished to um, say no to it. Um, and, um, but I think what, um, what, we're, what, we're, what is getting a little bit less attention is um, the, that when people were, in many places, when people were given the opportunity to um, vote, to um, materially change the conditions that they were living in or that their fellow humans were living in, um, they said yes. So, um, and I think a lot of these, I think we saw a lot of left and progressive victories that show that organizing people really works. Um, and, um, you know, so for example, we saw Florida voted for Trump, okay. Um, but they also passed a resolution to increase the minimum wage, eventually to $15 an hour. Um, Colorado had a very feminist night voting um, against um, greater restrictions on abortion and um, also for family and medical leave. Um, Oregon voted to tax the rich to fund universal pre-K um, also, um, and there were, we saw also a lot of blows struck against the, um, the um, mass incarceration industrial complex. We saw, um, we saw, for example, Oregon um, legal, decriminalized a startling number of drugs, including heroin, cocaine, and meth in small quantities. Um, South Dakota, Montana, Arizona, and New Jersey legalized marijuana for any reason. Um, Mississippi um, legalized medical marijuana. Um, we also saw um, along the lines of this, of this kind of um, blows against our cruel and racist, racist regimes of punishment, um, many cities elected very progressive district attorneys, district attorneys who had campaigned on strong platforms of reform like against um, reining, in, reining in police, ending cash bail. Um, and, um, you know, we saw, and that was a, a variety of, of places that that happened. Corpus Christi, Orlando, uh, Orlando um, Ann Arbor, um, Austin, Los Angeles. Um, it looks, there, there was a very close race um, in Phoenix that has not been, where all the, all the votes have not been counted yet. And we saw, um, we saw a victory for the original Justice Democrats and DSA powered squad. Um, we saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib um, were all reelected. And the squad was expanded. Um, we also saw um, Jamal Bowman, a very progressive educator from New York, um, who defeated an entrenched incumbent. Um, Corey Bush, um, amazing um, activist, um, became the first Black woman nurse and single mother to represent Missouri in Congress. Um, and it was a big night for DSA as well, um, which had endorsed 29 candidates of those 21 all over the country, including one, including someone in Western Montana going to the state house. Um, and um, 
um, many of the ballot initiatives that DSA endorsed had um, won as well. Um, and some, some people went to city government, various city councils, um, um, and, uh, you know, and um, Washington State mandated sex ed. I mean, there were really quite a lot of things. And they're all, these are all things that took a lot of organizing and a lot of um, sort of a lot of, you know, very, you know, a lot of what the, what Joe Biden didn't have, um, although, Thankfully, um, I think it looks like Joe Biden won anyway. But um, but a lot of what the corporate Democrats don't have, it, like a, what what seemed what seemed to win last night um, or or in the past few nights, um, were uh, um, you know clear messages about how um, how you how we could um, improve one another's material conditions. Um, and that seemed um, that that's that seems like a big winner. And uh, um, and so I think that um, you know we I think we're I, I think that it is a it's a depressing moment in the sense of in the sense that every four years we have a depressing moment in the in America, right? I mean, we always have this contest between the centrist Democrats and the right wing uh, Republicans. And um, and um, and um, and yet we do also see um, that um, organizing by the left wing forces um, does work and does win win victories, and that um, and that when um, when we do that, we create new kinds of majorities and new kinds of publics um, demanding new um, new and better things. Yeah, even in the heart of so-called Trump country, it would seem. I'd love to to hear more about some of those uh, developments you've you've mentioned. Montana, the success of DSA in Montana and others, uh, and other so places. I joined other DSA state yeah. representatives in in Montana. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So let's get into that. Uh, so thank you so much for that, Liza. I mean, I think you've really uh, highlighted so much, and, and I think things we can dig into. We were already talking earlier before the show about wanting to to dig into some of these referendum questions, uh, the ranked yeah. choice voting, which actually went down here in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. kind of surprisingly to some some of us. Um, so maybe to dig into that, both uh, you know the reasons for that, but also uh, the the opportunities that ranked choice voting may introduce in cutting through some of the the crap that gets in the way of actual substantive, substantive political discussion in, in this uh, society. Next up, we have uh, we have Ben Ben Mansky, also a DSA member. He reminds me. Um, and uh, Ben, what's your take? I know you study these things uh, from a variety of angles. What uh, what do you want to lift up that hasn't already been mentioned? Or and uh, you know, we're kind of laying out the read of this election and also laying the basis for some discussion and a follow up about next steps for the left. Sure. Well, I'll lift up a few more ballot measures. I saw that also in Florida, we had the rights of nature get added to a city charter in uh, Orange uh, in Florida. In my home state of Wisconsin, we had three more uh, resolutions passed, uh, voted on by the people of their, of, of their communities in Winnebago County and Land O'Lakes and I think, uh, another municipality and also in Ohio for the We the People Amendment, making clear that corporations are not people, money is not speech. And, I will note that those resolutions passed with over 80% of the vote once again. Uh, and these were in communities that had voted overwhelmingly for Trump. Uh, Wisconsin was the first state to launch the move to amend. Uh, and the vast majority of Wisconsinites live in jurisdictions where the people have voted 
for this constitutional amendment. And in fact, the majority of the people in the United States live in jurisdictions where the people or their elected representatives have voted for the We the People amendment. So that was music to my ears to see that. I also saw that the Green Party got a new mayor in uh, Los Angeles, Emmanuel Estrada in Baldwin Park. Um, that was great to see because there were a couple other local elections that I was paying attention to. We had Franca Muller-Paz, who was also a DSA candidate and a Green running in Baltimore, who ran a very strong uh, campaign with the backing of the Central Labor Council. Lots of union community backing came close. Jake Turkle in uh, San Jose as well. Um, and you know, a lot of people on the left may not know that the Greens have held uh, major offices in major cities, Minneapolis, we have Ken Gordon, uh, Cleveland, uh, my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin, uh, president of city council, school board, um, Milwaukee, Boston, you know, San Francisco, Santa Monica. So uh, there have been places where Greens have been playing that kind of bottom up role. And that's where most of the energies for independent politics usually go is, is to those local elections. Um, so that's all good news. Um, in terms of the question of where do we stand after election day or after election week, uh, I'm with Liza and with Jill in this sense. Uh, we just went through an important day. We're in the middle of an important struggle. The struggle is not over and we should talk about the coming weeks. Um, but the reality is, is that we're also amidst a period of heightened struggle, uh, a struggle that's been building since the early 1990s, really since the declaration of war on NAFTA and the Mexican government, ya basta with the Zapatistas, that first became visible to the world in Seattle in 1999, that arose again in 2006 with the day without an immigrant mayday strikes, that arose again uh, with the sort of early uh, organizing and uprise, uprisings around the murder of Trayvon Martin and then Black Lives Matter in the, in the teens, that arose again in the Wisconsin uprising in 2011 and then later that year with the Occupy movement that arose again with the teacher strikes of 2012 in Chicago and that swept across the country. Um, and so social movements are where it's at. Electoralism matters. We all engage in it. I agree with Jill. We've got to be collaborative, solidaristic. We have to take our work very seriously. And I say this to everybody I know who's in the Democratic Party and I have lots of friends who are Democrats, not just DSA members, by the way, members of Congress and others who maybe should be joining DSA people I know who are uh, closer to the establishment, but who I think are, are people of good uh, democratic faith, small d, right? That I want them to succeed. You know, they gotta be serious about their work and also avoid, you know, I'll say this also to fellow DSA members and people who are invested in the democratic party road to avoid arrogance, right? Uh, I'm a Jew, so I don't believe in sin, but let's avoid the sin of arrogance anyway. I say the same thing to Greens. You know, uh, we got to be serious. We, we, what we're doing matters, right? And similarly, we have to avoid that, that arrogance that can get in the way of solidarity. So let's figure out moving forward in the coming weeks. And I want to talk about the coming weeks once we've had these sort of opening statements uh, out of the way, how we're going to build together as part of this much larger mobilization that's happening right now for voting rights and to demand that every vote get counted, how we're going to build together in the coming weeks. And then as we move into this next period, how are we gonna win? Because we do have incredible momentum. We're missing organization, but we have incredible momentum, popular support. Lots of people are looking for ways to get involved uh, and we have to succeed. We have to be serious. Thank you, Ben. So much there to dig into as well. I hope we can lift up in the next round, maybe. I mean, how to how you conceive of how folks on the panel and, and in this broader, really rich group of folks we've gathered here, we'll get to soon enough, 
um, how you conceive of the kind of inside and outside struggle with respect to the Democratic Party, as well as maybe the inside outside with respect to kind of electoral struggle and social movement struggle itself to two kind of, you know, dialectics or two pairings that are not to be confused. They're certainly separate and yet sometimes overlap. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, that Ben and others too, I'm sure have thoughts and we can think about DSA and the Green Party and other other institutions approaching this, this, uh, this challenge. Last but not least, we have David, David with us, David, first time on Shelter and Solidarity. So glad to have you here, especially on short notice, but no doubt you bring great experience to this discussion. And so even though you've only had about half an hour to get ready for us. Uh, we're eager to hear what you have to say. Thanks for being here, David. And, and what's your take on our, on our moment, what it means, and uh, what, what the openings are, the necessities are for the left right now? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I'm definitely going to build off your initial question of like, what's happening? That's what, but I think you have to think about what's happened, you know, most immediately. Um, and I will, so I'll, I think I'll break this five minutes into the sad part and then the happy part. I think I will speak just for myself that I was very disheartened by how well Trump did, um, not only numerically, but I think he could not have achieved the, what looks like still a failure, but much, much closer than I think uh, some of us thought would be. Um, if he hadn't energized new people, I think he really tapped into an, this base that he's created. And I was, Reflecting on that, looking back to when George Bush, uh, after Katrina, Bush's popularity was in the 20s, you know, percent. And Trump, you know, who I feel has supervised even worse disasters with COVID is, you know, just, is, you know, is like a Katrina moment, not comparing them totally, but, you know, and it's still in 40%, you know, I mean, and almost became, was reelected. And I just think that the country has substantially changed. Um, in certain ways. And I think that, you know, building up Ben's comment about not being arrogant and Joe's comment about materialism, I really push against comrades of all organizations who say Bernie would have won. I don't think we actually know that. I think we, I could say that more confidently in 2016, but I think the world has changed even in the four years with QAnon, with people really consuming uh, conspiracy theories that would have, you know, not gone well against someone who's like me or Ben as a socialist Jew would have not have been like, there would have been, there would have been people who would have voted for Bernie, who, you know, didn't vote for Biden, but there's also people who had been energized too, you know, and I think we have to be re really scared that there's like this real fascistic base that is more, has always been there, but those latent tendencies have really been arisen. And I, Doug Headwood Liza's partner, you know, really said it best to me once. He's like, Trump is a uniquely good demagogue. And I think that Trump is able to use the caste, the racial caste system in the United States. By that, I mean that white people are on the top, but it's actually not always e people of color are equally oppressed. You know, he really targets and does divide and conquer, which brings Latinos in. So he can say horrible things about Mexicans, but you have to realize as someone who's from Chile, Latinos don't <laughs> view have solidarity always with Mexicans. You know what I mean? It's like, so there's tons of white Chileans, tons of white Cubans who are going to be like, you know, stronger than him against the, the things he's saying. And so I think it's too simplistic, I think, to think in, that just because he's racist, all these people are gonna come, but that also doesn't disabuse when people are like, well, you're just running on class issues. It, it, it's not also just that. So I wanna push against both the liberals who are kind of shocked 
but also some of my friends who write for edit for Jacobin too, who are like, oh, the narrative didn't match up. I'm like, well, the narrative kind of matched up. He, he picked and chose, he divided and conquered which people of color groups he was going to mobilize. And he did that with some with real success with Latinos and some success with African-Americans. Um, and I think it's that, so that's really disheartening. And I do think, I take the middle ground on Biden, not politically, but just strategically. It looks like his campaign strategy, some miraculously did work. I think he did the one thing I wanted, which was he didn't talk that much. You know, I was, you know, he really followed the basement strategy going back to the 18th and 19th century. You have your surrogates do the work for you. That was fine. I think like that was a good, that was a good strategy that may have put him over the top. And he kind of did, if you're a boxing fan, the rope of dope let Trump kind of, you know, exhaust himself and make the mistakes. So that's the, so that's like the middle ground of like, well, I guess it worked out. I don't think that's sustainable. I don't think that's a winning strategy for 2024. But where I am excited, you know, to build off what I think the speakers have said before me, um, and I'll keep it quick, is I do think Sanders is like a Barry Goldwater figure in a good way. I think that he has really inspired a movement of people who are really in it for the long term that are running down ballot. Um, and I think what really is the difference between 2008 and 2020 right now with Biden versus Obama is Obama inherited a situation where people were exhausted after eight years of Bush. There were still blue dogs who were a substantial part of the Democratic Congress. Now we have the squad and people remember four years as a shorter term memory and people really have demands and Biden doesn't have the ability to diffuse people like Barack Obama will for historic reasons of both good and bad. So I'm personally pretty optimistic about the sustainability of, of our movement and keeping people. I don't think the going, Wise and I have joked about this, I don't think going back to brunch is a real thing that's gonna happen because I think people do have real material demands in this crisis as Dr. Science said, that just can't, that have to be settled one way or the other and it's up to us. So that those are my comments. Thank you so yeah, much. Thank you, David. That's that's wonderful. Wonderful opening comments from our from our four gathered guests here. And uh, I mean, there's so much here to dig into. I mean, I have to admit. I mean, although I, I don't go around saying, "Oh, Bernie would have won," although you know, you, there's polls you can you can uh, you know that Bernie would have trounced Trump. But I, I have to just say, from a standpoint, not so much of like what the, what the outcome would be, but from the standpoints of just like a an experiment for learning about our contemporary political situation. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen or be able to run the Bernie Trump election? You know what I mean? Just to see, I mean, and just, and, and this is, to me is, is, is important as, a, as a, qu a question, I mean, really to dig into, I think something you said, I also really identified with David, which was uh, just the feeling, the, the, the disheartened feeling at how well Trump did, right? The idea that there is kind of 40% for Trump, regardless of whatever he does and whatever happens, COVID, et cetera. You know what does this support mean? Is it and how deep does it go? Right to what degree? I mean, we talk a lot about votes for Biden that are really just they are much more anti-Trump votes than they are pro-Biden votes. To what degree does that phenomenon exist on the other side in a way that is not simply, you know, that that, that we could actually seek uh, potential unity with rather than you know, of course, you know, being anti-Biden because he has a black running mate, right? You know, anti-Biden because he he actually has catered to some left left or liberal rhetoric, that's that's one thing. So so I'm kind of wondering, I mean, a question I'm tempted to put out is we're still on kind of what moment are we in? How do people read? I'm curious how our panel reads the, the persistent, if perhaps electorally inadequate support for Trump that we are seeing. I mean, how do you read that? 
Uh, and and what I mean, what other kind of when we look at the kind of demographic trends of who turned out for whom? I mean, the issue of the Latino vote has been mentioned, which actually way up, right? Overall, I was just hearing Juan Gonzalez on Democracy Now earlier today talking about the Latino vote overall way up, particularly in the Southwest and some of the areas that have really felt the brunt of Trump's demonizing. Uh, I mean, when you look at the demographic change, you know, trends we're seeing, the obviously preliminary polls, exit polls and numbers, I mean, what stands out to you all? I'm particularly interested in how you read and what you make of from a left perspective of the Trump number, but but there may be, I'm sure there are other numbers that, you know, you can turn into more than numbers for us, whether that's uh, people voting for or, or, or against whatever they, uh, that they're opposing. Uh, I don't know if anyone would like, if we can just go in order on that. Jill, could I pitch that one to you again? And I know you kind of touched on it earlier, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, well, in, in 2016, you know, when uh, Trump was introducing himself to the world, um, his supporters were overwhelmingly anti-Hillary. They were not pro-Trump. And they were you know, they were clearly motivated by NAFTA and the TTP and the lack of health care and the trouncing of the working class and the middle class that took place under Obama and the bailouts for Wall Street and, you know, and, and the massive economic hit that was taken by everybody else. You know, 95% of economic gains went to the top 1%. And even that was extremely highly concentrated at the very tip top and 80% lost. And that really hasn't changed. You know, in fact, we've only become more, um, uh, more unequal and, and more unfair, you know, especially now in the presence of COVID where people who've been insecure to start with have really taken it on the chin and have not recovered. And we're seeing, you know, the bread lines are, are stretching miles long now, literally, and, and the food pantries are completely overrun. And we're looking at an, evi an eviction tsunami of, uh, that may affect half of uh, all, all renters. I mean, we may be looking at tens of millions of people who are about to be thrown out on the street. So people, you know, <laughs> to my mind, you know, and, and I've been looking for good statistics on this and I haven't found anything yet to dispute the concept that, well, in fact, let me put out another statistic, which is that 63% now, I believe, 61, two, three, something like that, percent of people now, uh, according to it's either Gallup or Pew, are calling for another party, an independent party, because they feel Democrats and Republicans are incapable of governing on their behalf. And, um, you know, one year prior, there was another poll that showed 70% uh, of American voters are not just fed up, they are fighting angry at the political establishment. And I haven't seen anything that really uh, disputes that. I think many of Trump's fans have now, they're not just voting against the other, they're also for Trump because they see him as the consistent enemy of the neoliberal agenda, which is you know foremost in their minds. Of, of what has destroyed them. And now it's not been at all that Trump has helped people, you know, uh, he hasn't, but he's not as clearly identified in the minds of his supporters yet with the very clear harm. And he's learned to um, drive home some of the issues that, that really 
uh, push buttons around NAFTA and jobs. Um, you know, that, that's really his, his overarching issue. You know, for four years, he's talked about how he's going to fix healthcare, and he hasn't managed to do anything on that or anything else for that matter. You know, so it's, um, I, I don't see the allegiance, a, a deep allegiance to Trump. And there's every evidence out there that people are, are fighting angry at what they identify as the establishment. And Trump, you know, because he's a great demagogue and because people are vulnerable to demagoguery when they're under economic attack. And they are. And you know, it's just so clear, I think, that we have to, um, you know, uh, our job is, is to improve those conditions uh, locally through social movements, uh, that's really what the fight is. I don't think there is some firm allegiance to Trump. I think people are being pushed into, um, you know, by a demagogue into this, uh, you know, awful uh, uh, Trump momentum. But I do think it's disruptible, and I don't see the, that the attachment is deep. Right. Thank you so much for that, Jill. I mean, a couple of numbers I was looking at today. Apparently, uh, the number of votes for Trump among those labeled as white was up, including white women, uh, including white men under 30, even though the youth vote has generally, generally went for Biden in a very strong way. Um, certainly some, some major uh, kind of racial uh, uh, you know, uh, disproportionality in terms of how that vote went. Um, Liza, what, 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 what numbers uh, speak out to you from, from making, you know, parsing this election or to what, do, you know, how do you see this, this question of uh, Trump's support and what that means? Again, many, many people feeling kind of disheartened by the sense that there clearly wasn't some national rebuke of Trump, whatever, you know, even if we can be hopeful about the election's outcome, you know, knocking on whatever your preferred substance here. Um, Liza, what do you think? Well, um, I mean, one of the things that um, I, I think that um, I, I think that, uh, like, of, of course, Jill is right that people are people people are suffering, and that an an authoritarian per, um, personality like Trump can um, can can seem um, appealing um, to um, to a nation in distress. Um, however, those suffering the most distress aren't primarily those who voted for Trump. Um, if you look at um, his um, the votes he got by income. It's actually striking um, how much support he has among people making over a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, and I think that that's like, I think that that's really interesting. And in that when you see that that in many ways this global right wing movement um, is is really a bourgeois movement. It's not, it may have some appeal to some people in the working class, but that's not its primary, um, that's not its primary base. Um, and, um, and I think that um, sometimes the media, I think exaggerates the working classness of Trump's support because, mm. um, and the, the reason for that, I think, is that they see these people as very ignorant and unsophisticated, and in a in a classist fashion, they therefore make the leap that these people must be working class, right? If they are ignorant and racist, that they must be working class. And that is, um, I think that that is is really not the case. I'm not saying no working class person voted for Trump. That of course would be an absurd thing to say. But if you look at the income breakdown, that's not a 
Um, that's not the, the majority of where his support is coming from. I think a lot of, um, in, in many cases, his supporters are actually people who are partly responsible for inflicting pain. Many of them are small business owners and they're, um, they don't wanna see um, they don't. They don't want to see higher minimum wages or um, or anything like that. They, to some extent, support a conservative economic agenda. Um, and you know, a lot of the people who vote for Trump are the people who always vote for Republicans. And you know, he's um, he excites a little bit. He's got a. There's a little bit more excitement about him, which is where where you see his um, his support in some surprising groups, like some some groups of Latinos and you know some the sort of weird thing of a few more um, votes from African American men, you know, which is unusual. But um, but that's you know because he's a he's he's a he's an interesting figure. We are we are most of our politicians are so boring, you know. But he said he says unpredictable stuff. People share his you know, his statements on YouTube, you know, and, um, and, you know, so there's a little bit more interest surrounding him, which I think accounts for, um, for, for some of it, but largely his support is very much like any Republican um, and very much like what we're seeing, uh, the, the base that we're seeing for the far right around the world. Um, and we also see a huge gender gap, like a lot, more men um, going. I, I know um, our, our, my people, white women, um, you know, are disturbingly um, in large numbers did vote for him. But there's still you know, across demographic groups, there is a gender gap, um, and 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 I think, you know, like as in, as with the rest of this um, global far right movement, um, there's a lot of. Um, there's 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 a lot of appeal to um, you know men who you know if men if men feel in many ways um, you know alienated and you know disempowered by um, the conditions of um, neoliberal capitalism um, you know the and these the, these sort of um, these sort of authoritarian macho figures cannot hold a lot of appeal um, so I think that's another part of it. You know, one thing that stood out to me in, in rereading a Corey Robbins chapter on Trump in the reactionary mind, I don't know if folks have read this, really interesting. It's the chapter, last chapter of the book is called A, a Show About Nothing. It really emphasizes Trump's, you know, history is like a failed, you know, as a very lackluster businessman, but always very uh, excited and committed and effective at creating spectacle, right? I mean, the one thing yeah. that Trump has been very deeply philosophic, if you can say anything's deep about him, his commitment to kind of drawing attention as if that itself is a form of value, right? Yeah. And his, his, he always his, says, my ratings, my ratings yeah. are great. Yeah, like I mean, uh, even as president. Yeah, and I mean, you know, part of, part of me wonders if if what Trump was upset about with the kind of vote starting to, to, to kind of go against him on election night and the reluctance of networks to call things in his favor was that he really just wanted to throw an incredible opulent party in that room. You know what I mean? He's really been, you know, really, I mean, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to trivialize his, you know, his deep reactionary rhetoric, but I do kind of like, I mean, reading the Robin, the Corey Robin piece and some other, you know, Samuel Moyne and others, I also think about, you know, the particularity of Trump. I don't want to fix it on Trump. Obviously we have deeper questions about this whole society, but uh, just, no, you know, he's um, important. We need to, yeah, <laughs> we need to stick with it for a minute. <laughs> we do need to parse, parse what's going on here too, right? Uh, you know, this, uh, 
anyway, I don't want to go too down that hole unless you all want to. We have oh, no, I, I, the time here. I, I want to pick it up from there. Yeah, Ben, take it from there, and then we'll go I'll to David. And, and I mean, feel it's, free. Don't. It's, yeah, it's go ahead. trivial because it's disgusting, but it's also not trivial because it is fascism. And I hope we've had the debate about fascism. I hope that's over by now because um, for me, um, this is classic. I mean, this is classic. You know, this you know this spectacle has always played uh, a critical role. Uh, for fascist movements. And really, uh, you know, I appreciate the way that this was framed and also the way that David sort of set it up uh, by bringing this to, to our discussion because, uh, you know, I have been thinking that there basically are three great global movements of our time, right? Um, two of them have a mass base. One of those is authoritarianism, right? It's an authoritarian movement. We've seen it globally. Um, there are common characteristics to authoritarian movements across the global south, you know, uh, the Middle East, you name it. Um, a lot of those have to do with religion, which we haven't talked about at all. So if we were to break down that category of white, I think we're going to see some very interesting things breaking Catholics out from certain Protestant, non-mainline Protestant denominations, non-African-American Protestant categories. Um, uh, and, um, and that's one. We have a global democracy movement. And as somebody who has really devoted my entire life to uh, trying to get a pro-democracy current going in the United States, the idea that we have to fight for democracy and develop strategies for democratization in the US, I am really heartened to see that the left has embraced the language of democracy as something that not only we do, but that we are fighting for, right, alongside of justice. So democracy has taken its place in the US alongside of justice as a master frame, right? So we have a democracy movement globally, we have authoritarian movement, of course we have neoliberalism, which doesn't have a mass base and goes this way and that, right? Uh, and that's a movement from above, right? So those are the conditions we're dealing with. So what does this have to do with Trump? Well, um, look, uh, Jill, when you said earlier that in 2016, it was a vote against Hillary, that's completely true. And it's also true, I will say, at least speaking for Wisconsin and Minnesota and Michigan states, I know very well, that, uh, that Bernie would have won those states in a landslide. <laughs> I can't speak to other states, but just in terms of the culture of the working class there, right, that would have been the case. Um, um, but, uh, but in the last four years, uh, the authoritarians in this country have been very successful in deepening and building organization and consolidating. Right, so we're in. Uh, this struggle is going to continue, and then I'll leave us with this question. Um, if I, I guess I'm raising questions of ideology and organization here, right, and arguing for their importance, and I think it's important for people who are committed to democracy and justice to also assess where we are really at in terms of organizational capacity. There's been a lot of analysis of the labor movement, but we haven't really looked at other forms of social movement organization. The student movement is in terrible shape comparatively compared to the 1990s and 1980s. It's been decimated in terms of organizational infrastructure. Where are community organizations at? Really, we, we've moved to online organizing, all kinds of very fast mobilization. Where is our organizational capacity? Have we really moved forward? And also, where are we at electorally? Um, I, I am optimistic about the ability to work in partnership with, with the progressive wing and the socialist wing of Congress, right? I, but I also came up with when Ron Dillums was kicking down doors, you know, and there were plenty, Bob Kastenmeyer was my congressman growing up in South Central Wisconsin. And we need to have an assessment 
and maybe David can help us, have we really advanced in terms of uh, our strength electorally? Um, so those are questions we need to be asking ourselves, even if at the same time, um, we to recognize that in terms of momentum, in terms of mobilization, in terms of youth leadership, we are in better shape, right? Yeah, thank you, Ben. Uh, I mean, I think that taking stock of where we're actually at, whereas as opposed to where we'd like to be is, is vitally uh, important. I want to point folks to another show Ben did with us on the struggle in higher education a couple weeks into our Shelter and Solidarity uh, experiment, shelterandsolidarity.org really, I think, led a, a really brilliant discussion of this very issue, uh, the kind of lack of organization, at least national organization, uh, within higher education in particular, and this question of the student moment uh, movement is close to me as a, as a higher educator myself, uh, who works with students every day. David, where would you like to take this? I know we're, we kind of started to dig deeper into like, what do the numbers show us that might not be obvious, but also I think as we're getting close to the eight o'clock hour, we definitely want to crystallize that question, which many have touched on, but maybe foreground a little more about what is to be done. You know, what do you see as based on not that we can rush there, but based on the strategic assessment that, that you have of the moment we're in, uh, what do you think are some of the, the short, medium, long-term um, kind of objectives that you see or the, the tactics that are appropriate or the strategy appropriate to this moment, David? Yeah, so I'll just say, I think it's fighting for democratic norms broadly. And I think that's, and that's a North Star to have to build up what Ben was saying. So for example, even though groups like DSA, Socialist Alternative, didn't endorse Biden at all, would have never have done that. I saw them with other groups, you know, it, it, when, I, when we rallied, it took over Fifth Avenue yesterday to count the votes. I think it's a very simple message, count every vote. It was, I mean, it, people understand it, like, because what we have to tell people, you know, it's clear, it's like, you know, bourgeois democracy is terrible, but it's still where we need to be to get to socialism compared to authoritarianism. I mean, it's just, you can't, we can't regress and this to borrow like similar language like we, this cadillo politics you know these strong men you know are not where if we regress to that which trump wants to you know it's really doesn't do it's going to be very difficult to organize and that's another discussion it's fighting for every vote you know i think it's pushing pressure to stop 2000 from happening by that i mean gore conceding biden has more more power, he's more empowered to like be like, these are the people on the streets, whether he uses that or not, it's, but those were things that didn't happen. And I think, and I think it's just coming down to building organizations um, is important. And this is what I would say here for the sake of time is like, you know, people have been seeing the stat, like $200 million went to Jamie Harrison and Amy McGrath's loser campaigns for cents. I could have, I gave to Harrison a lie, but I knew McGrath was a loser to begin with, I mean, just think about what we could do. I mean, for context, the second largest teachers union's budget is about is less than $50 million. I mean, so $200 million is a lot of money. And so I think, so when Liza and I were discussing this, I think it's like the key thing is getting people to join membership organizations because when I was union staff, when I joined DSA, it becomes an educational tool for people to realize actually my $10 a month is better going to a PAC. By a PAC, I mean our like, DSA pack, my unions pack, where that can actually aggregate working people's money to make political decisions, not to some candidate who's totally unaccountable to me. And so it's rebuilding institutions to help people actually think like, I know it feels good and I don't judge people as a human being mm -hmm. to give $25, I do it all the time to candidates, but actually it's better to give that money to an organization who can that's democratic, who can actually make a better decision that's more pound for pound effective. And I think that's the medium term and long term is always, you know, 
moving towards socialism. So, but the first of the medium and but the, I think that the socialism can only happen if we achieve those building organizations and defending democratic rights and expanding them. Thank you, Dave. Uh, yeah. I'll be brief. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, I, I noticed a, a poll, a, a study that was done, I shared recently, um, that, that a strong majority, actually a super majority of, of Americans apparently favor abolishing the Electoral College, right? Just, just for one example, right? I mean, I know, Ben, this is something you've studied, my understanding, right? Kind of structural kind of barriers to an actual kind of fully substantial democracy here. I mean, it seems like this is not like th these kinds of, you know, this kind of consciousness about the lack of democracy in the system we have is it's not like a it's a marginal left group that that you know it's, this is not the property of you know of just radical socialists right i mean this is very there's a very broad sense of some of the you know the, the historic legacies of, of kind of uh, uh, authoritarianism or a minority rule that's kind of like written into our very uh, constitution itself. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, a, a it, it seems to me very exciting, this idea of a de democratic uh, movement that, that is, you know, thinking deeply about what real democracy would mean. Um, I'd love to hear from Jill, Liza, and Ben on the kind of what is to be done question, like one more, I mean, obviously there's a lot to be done, but whatever one or two things you'd like to highlight before we have a brief in musical interlude and bring in questions, comments from this really great group of folks we have here on Zoom here. Um, Maybe we uh, come back to in the same order, uh, Dr. Jill. Sure. Um, yeah, and I think um, you know really important things being said, and um, you know strongly support all the suggestions that people have made. And you know, uh, we clearly need. Sorry, my dog is feeling uh, <laughs> in on the act here, but. Um, you know, it's it's kind of like the $24,000 question, how do we build movements? You know, how do we build organizations? And how do we bootstrap ourselves when, you know, when it's, it's, uh, it, it's not for lack of, you know, commitment and serious purpose that we have been spinning our wheels. I mean, many of us have just really felt the, um, you know, uh, the hammer of uh, political repression and um, silencing by media and smearing and, um, you know, uh, investigations by Senate committees and just, you know, the usual set of tools to undermine uh, political opposition and um, radical organizing. Um, and I, I just wanna name a couple of things with the social upheaval that's going on right now, uh, I think the potential for a general strike, it's already out there. I think the momentum towards that is certainly going to grow. And the, the social conditions that we're gonna be facing are a real um, you know, powerful opportunity for organizing and mobilizing. And so clearly that is a major universe of um, work to be done. And I also want to mention ranked choice voting. Um, in Massachusetts, it went down, but I think that has everything to do with COVID and the fact that when you're promoting a, a basic change in something like the way that people vote, um, 
you have to, uh, you, you need face-to-face -face contact, you need to do canvassing, you need hands-on games. This is how it was passed in Maine. They, you know, people just showed up at bars and did demonstrations for, you know, walk people through how you do uh, ranked choice voting. And it was extremely successful. And all of that was completely blocked in, uh, in the era of COVID. So I'll just throw those two out as really important areas for collaboration and movement building. Thank you, Jill. Um, Liza? Yeah, um, well, actually, as you guys were talking about the Electoral College, I was gonna say it's, um, I, I, only, um, I only recently, um, this only recently came on my radar, but, um, but these, um, these efforts um, to get states um, to, um, to abide by the popular vote, um, like to, to pass resolutions saying that they will give their electoral uh, electors to the popular vote winner um, once a certain number of states has made this resolution. Like it's obviously kind of a prisoner's dilemma. Like you, no one wants to do it like before a certain, before a critical mass of states have done it. Um, but, um, but that strikes me as, um, that's that strikes me as a, I don't usually get that excited about these sort of, like, um, like, I don't know, these sort of um, solving problems from above, but this kind of is a problem that needs to be solved um, at, at, the, at, the policy, at the wonky policy level um, by massive grassroots organizing. And I think that um, the uh, um, abolishing the electoral college in that kind of piecemeal way um, might very well um, be something that there was a lot of popular enthusiasm for and might be something. Um, and I don't, I actually don't otherwise um, see um, how we would, with, I mean, actually without a reform like that, I'm not sure we will ever get um, the kind of um, presidential leadership that um, all of us on this Zoom panel would like to see. I think that the Electoral College would be um, just left intact the way it is, um, might actually be too big of, of a barrier. It's, I mean, it was put in place for white supremacist reasons. It um, continues to um, protect those, those same white supremacist capitalist interests that it was put in place to do. I mean, I, and I, I think that um, I, I think that we probably need to do something about that if we're really um, concerned about the presidency. Um, otherwise, I, I think what it, the what is to be done is is absolutely, as David said, build organizations, um, whether it's um, you know whether it's membership-based socialist organizations um, or whether it's um, your union, um, whether if you're, uh, you know, if you're a member of the union, build the union, build its power, um, support the, um, support the democratic slates um, within your union. Um, and, uh, um, and, and if you're um, not a union member, consider um, organizing a union in your workplace. I was very, to Jill's point about a general strike, I, I, I always sort of say, oh, it's easy enough to say other people should go on general strike. However, um, it, it's really, it was really interesting to me how, how many um, unions and union locals 
um, said that they were that they would support a general strike effort um, if Trump attempted to steal the election. Like that, that was like a that there was a, there was a real groundswell in um, labor leaders um, talking general strike um, in that um, in that instance, and it 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 definitely seemed. Um, I'm extremely happy that it looks like we're not going to have to do that just because um, I'm um, happy not to have this particular fight with the fascists. But um, it, it was really heartening that um, labor was so open to using the general strike in a political way. Yeah, Liza, and this is something you've written about it, uh, for The Nation, is that right? I know that you, you mentioned a piece you were working on uh, on on the this question within the within the union movement, I just want to make sure we can point. No, no, no. Uh, I didn't oh, write a whole piece about it. Uh, I, 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 oh, okay. I, there was I I I read um, I read a couple of of um, Barbara Madaloni. We did some great. Um, oh, there you go. Right. For labor notes about it. Um, yeah, labor notes has had a couple pieces on this. Also, Alejandro Reyes, my uh, UMass Boston colleague, actually had a piece which we sent out to our whole union membership. I think it was just as one mm -hmm. little part of this. It's interesting to think, right, that the the, the hypothetical preparation for for a fascist offensive might actually realize some in the labor movement to realize some muscle that we didn't know we had, or maybe to and maybe mm -hmm. build a little mm -hmm. bit of it. Um, just then, even talking about it is is a is a even to hear the leadership talking about it is a really powerful thing because it reminds people um, how much power there is yeah. in working or withdrawing your labor. Yeah, and the possibility of a, of a strike is not, not just an economic kind of uh, tool, right. right, to fight for a contract, but but as a political, a as a yeah. political uh, tool as well. Ben, I know you're someone who's worked on some of these issues, or you know the kind of lack of democracy in the constitution and what can be done about it as my understanding from talking with our one of our producers seren could you i mean what do you what do you think about this i mean the what is to be done question can be taken in many ways but uh you know how do you step into it in this I'll, moment I'll talk about the short term the immediate term and, and the long term uh, first of all i understand the desire to declare uh that trump's reign is over uh, as much as he may try to claim states. I found that language very interesting, very regal uh, language about claiming states. Um, but I, I want to caution that we're not out of the woods yet. And I have to caution myself yeah. about that. I, I, yeah. I was on KPFA the other day and I kept on talking about the struggles ahead with the Biden administration. Um, but um, I fully expect that we are going to have some trigger points. Uh, and I don't mean to use that term in its other meaning, but just to say, well, we're going to have some some points in the next couple of days in which mobilizations are going to increase. I just saw on my way over here uh, that in Minnesota and the Twin Cities, there are over 600 arrests of people who are out in the streets uh, who are attempting to comply with an order to uh, move uh, out of, of the highway. Um, and, and so there's a lot that we're not hearing about in terms of mass protests right now, even those of us who pay a lot of attention. But look, um, they will try to stop Biden from taking office. I mean, not just through litigation. Um, at some point, we will see, um, you know, uh, a move to direct action, right? And not nonviolent direct action necessarily, right? I mean, it's, I think there's at least a 50% chance of that, um, given what we've been through in the last 20 years. Uh, and if that happens, then um, there will be a mass response, right? So the question of the general strike, I think, is real. Um, I was somebody who was on strike, a wildcat strike with the University of California. We had a system-wide wildcat strike um, that shut down the University of California system earlier this year. 
um, our strike power was defeated by COVID, <laughs> okay? Um, there are limits to the economic, uh, the power of COVID in the state to in effect an economic shutdown was greater than our own capacity as workers, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I don't wanna, I don't say that to say that it would be a bad thing for workers to go on strike nationally. I think the benefit of a general strike would be that once it's been done once, it can be done again. In Wisconsin also, it happened during the Wisconsin uprising. It's a little piece of the Wisconsin uprising that is not part of the popular lore, but should be brought forward. So it's happened. It happened on May Day, right, in 2006, or the day without an immigrant. So it's good to bring the general strike back into the repertoire of the working class in the United States. That's a gain, but it won't actually win us anything on its own. Let's be clear about that, given the way that our economy works today, right? We need much more targeted action. That's the short term, okay? The longer term on the constitutional question, um, I support the popular vote initiative, that effort, that compact that Liza that you were talking about. I also support an amendment to abolish the, the electoral college. I would also support that the only president that I would ever, the only person I'd ever wanna see in, a, in, the, in the Oval Office sitting there would be this one. I, I don't support having an office of the presidency. I'm with Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Paine and others there. Um, and I am incredibly optimistic about the fact that we have these mass democracy movements, primarily led by young women in Chile, so your, your home, David, or one of your homes, in Thailand, in Scotland, in Catalonia, that are fighting for constitutional change. And I predict in Poland now, too, with this uh, you know, draconian ruling from the Supreme Court in Poland. In the United States, we have to engage at the bottom with a great number of people around the question of what type of society we want to live in. And that means what kind of constitution should we have if we truly want to be a democracy? We want America to be the America that it never was. So I want to draw attention back to Move to Amend, which not only has continued, had succeeded in building support both within Congress for the We the People Amendment and continued to build support at the base for the We the People Amendment, to get to take on corporate power, which is the fundamental obstacle, but also has initiated uh, through the People's Movement Assembly process consultations around a new constitution in the United States. So check out what MoveToAmend.org has to say about that. Thank you, Ben. I, I imagine you also would be in favor of uh, abolishing the Senate. Yeah. Uh, Senate, which is a problem, not you might argue, not just because Mitch McConnell is is our, is likely to be at the the head of it again. Uh, or at least the majority leader, right? But but for many other reasons, including those that uh, connect with the electoral college problems. Absolutely. The yeah. Former um, ambassador to the United States uh, from Venezuela uh, once uh, said, I'm sure this is a common phrase of his. He said, "We should have as much representation as necessary and as much democracy as possible." So that's a, a good creed, I think, for all of us. Yeah. Powerful. Powerful line. Uh, David, you started us on this one is to be a done question yourself, but I'll give you another another ha uh, you know uh, shot at it before we open things up, have a little music, and open up uh, for some comments and questions. Uh, what sure, would you like I'll to add? Just, yeah, the thing I'd add, uh, I'll add one comment because uh, I want to I don't want to be even standing between the guests. Um, is I I work uh, in my job as a civil servant. I am part of uh, the city agency and the Big Apple that administers the public financing program what we like to call small donor democracy, which, you know, get, so New York has a very generous program that if you qualify as a candidate, you get matched uh, for every dollar you get from city residents, you can be matched eight to one. 
Um, and it's a really important effort, I think, that people should really think about fighting for. There's different ways to do it. Um, you know, Maine and Arizona give grants um, instead of just matching. Um, and that's something that we really need to drown corporate money out of politics. And it's shown to really bring people who probably couldn't run before uh, to the game. And so I, and people who have, you know, run for other offices or join have lists and can, they can really build institutions and build institutional support from grassroots groups, from local people and not be dependent on dialing for dollars. Um, and I just think, you know, how wonderful it is for AOC, for example, that we, she has so much money that she doesn't, the, the, the DCCC can't make her like all the other freshmen, you know, dial four hours a day. I mean, that's what they have to do if they don't have an independent base of money. And that's, that allows her to be a much more of a force out there and not having to do that work. And I think that's also an in-between step between what Ben and other people are talking about constitutionally. I think it, it is a way to move us forward toward being a more democratic society. Thank you so much, David. Yeah, I mean, I think those of us on the left sometimes can can maybe jump over that the crucial uh, issue of resources, right? That what we can actually accomplish, you know, uh, if we're yeah. if we're serious, re requires resources, requires infrastructure. Um, you can't just will these things into being. You need to really build them. Thank you so much, all to all of our um, you know our guests so far. We're, you know, obviously we're we're sticking around with you here. We're just going to go to a brief musical interlude. We have an appropriate song. Dean Stevens, one of the sponsors. Uh, one of the a leading figure in one of the sponsoring organizations of Shelter and Solidarity, the Community Church of Boston, is on the Zoom with us with a song ready to go for this crazy week. Dean, are you there? I sure am. Can you hear me? I can, Dean. And right All after right. we hear from Dean, I just want to remind our live Zoom audience that we will be taking your questions and comments uh, for our panelists, as well as for our expanded audience, anything you'd like to say, there's a lot on the table today and a lot that maybe should be on the table that isn't there yet. So please help us put it there. Dean, take it away. Hello, everybody. Dean Stevens from Community Church of Boston. We are called a peace and justice congregation since 1920, and we have a Sunday speaker series. Uh, last Sunday, we had our own beloved Jill Stein speak, and I want to tell you about a couple of more upcoming 11 a.m. Uh, events, uh, December 6th. We give our annual Sacco and Vanzetti Award to none other than Daniel Ellsberg. And December 13th, we have Chris Hedges. So it's, it's um, check us out on our YouTube channel, Community Church of Boston Official. The Electoral College, I've heard said a few times. I remember in 2000, I was, January 2000, I was in El Salvador trying to explain to a, a group of uh, villagers uh, the Electoral College in the United States uh, during the Bush-Gore craziness. And well, uh, I, and I, uh, everything I said uh, just elicited the response of, que injusto, injusticia. Um, that's all they could say. So, um, on election day, I was for 15 hours uh, working the polls and uh, re-memorizing this song the whole time, which is another foreigner's take on, on the United States' uh, government system. And here it is, Leonard Cohen. It's coming through a hole in the air 
those nights on Tiananmen Square. It's coming from the field that this ain't exactly real. Or it's real, but it ain't exactly there. From the wars against disorders, from the silence night and day, from the fires of the homeless, from the ashes of the gay. Democracy is coming. visionary flood of alcohol from the staggering account of the sermon on the mount which i don't pretend to understand at all it's coming from the silence on the dock of the bay from the brave that bruised the battered heart of chevrolet democracy is coming Homicidal bitchin' that goes on in every kitchen To determine who will serve and who will eat From the wells of disappointment where the women kneel to pray For the grace of God in the desert and the desert far away Democracy is coming to the USA shores of need, past the reefs of greed, through the squalls of hate, sail on, sail on, sail on. It's coming to America first, the cradle of the best the worst. It's here they've got the range, the machinery for change. It's here they've got the spiritual thirst. It's here the family's broken and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open up in a fundamental way. Democracy is coming!
sentimental, if you know what I mean. I love the country, but I can't stand the scene. I'm neither left nor right. I'm just staying home tonight, getting lost in that hopeless little scream. But I'm stubborn as those garbage bags that time cannot decay. I'm junk, but I'm still holding out this little wild bouquet. Democracy's coming! Dean Stevens, you know, you can hear me clap. I'm, I see many, many other people clapping. Folks may not see it, but we have an audience that really appreciates a little music, live music in this digital, digitally separated age. Thank you so much, Dean Stevens, for that. Thank you to Community Church of Boston for being a, a part of this Shelter and Solidarity project. Um, so the musical interlude means we're, we're expanding the conversation. We're, we're welcoming those who are on the live Zoom and those on Facebook too. If you can write a comment there, a question, we may be able to relay it into our live conversation. Right now, I have at least two folks in the queue uh, and I think a few others on the way here. Uh, I'd like to call on Gloria. Gloria has a question and after that, we'll go to, to, go to Andy. Thank you. Um, hi, uh, I know some of the panelists. Good to see you again. And some of the, uh, I'm Gloria Matera. I'm one of the national co-chairs of the Green Party um, and also co-chair here in New York. Um, thank you for the song, Dean. It's a great song. Um, so many questions, but um, just a couple of quick comments and questions. Um, you know, I just appreciate Ben talking about looking at the strength of organizations and there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of conversation, um, you know, within it, in my party and elsewhere about the youth. Um, and it's, you know, it's in kind of thinking about how do you attract them and, and what organizations, I don't see youth really connected to organizations in the way I came up. Um, and so, you know, how do we, the baby boomer generation kind of make that Happen. I mean, the social media seems to be the real way people communicate. Although it's very enthusiastically see, I mean, in New York, it was sustained protests all summer, every day, uh, mostly young people, um, you know, but still finding a way to kind of get them to coalesce in, in some way. And, and not our job, right, as their elders, but um, how can we support that work? But, you know, just uh, in talking with Jill was speaking earlier, I mean, I think we cannot um, you know, underestimate empire and how it is trying to squash any of our movements, whether it's electoral, uh, whether it's, you know, kind of police violence against people gathering to be able to express themselves. And, you know, one, one example really, um, you know, Jill has fought very hard and talked, uh, done a lot of work on election integrity. And if she has a moment to talk a little about some of the wins, I mean, here in New York, we've just lost our ballot status because the governor passed a law that made it three times harder uh, for smaller alternative parties to be able to stay on the ballot and give people a real choice when people are asking for real choices. And I think, you know, and I, I, I acknowledge Ben, thank you for both talking about the Green Party and the DSA and, and, and Liza, the, the, Green, the DSA 
wins. But I think we have to think about if we're going to try and coalesce around, you know, what more can we coalesce around except election integrity and every vote be counted? And with, you know, with DSA kind of shilling for voting for Biden on the Working Families Party line, like, I don't know where that fits in trying to create some left unity around a very basic thing, which is every vote counts. Thank you. Thank you, Gloria. I was thinking maybe we can take a few comments and questions from our audience, and then we'll go back to the panel to make sure we can we can uh, you know optimize the number of, of voices that can be included. Uh, next, I have Andy. And again, those who would like to speak, you might have already written in the chat earlier, but if you could remind me, uh, I'm, I have trouble following the chat in the midst of such a engaged discussion. So if you could uh, remind our, one of my producers or co-producers or, 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 or me directly in the chat box, I'll make sure to call on you. We have Andy up next. Hi, Joseph. Thank you very much for that. Uh, one of my biggest concerns uh, for quite a while now uh, has been what's driving or destroying basically our political system. And of course, it's money is key to that. But key to that also, the money is coming from our economic system of capitalism, which is a very authoritarian system. And it's been that way for 400 years. On average, it fails every seven years, and every time it fails, the rich get richer. Uh, since 1975, as one article recently posted, there's been $50 trillion stolen by the 1% from the rest of us, and that's equivalent to $297,000 per household. So anyway, our economic system uh, is ruining our political system. So my question comes down to uh, what's been promoted by Marxist economist, Professor Richard Wolff, uh, promoting uh, democracy in the workplace, like through co-ops, for example, you know, vast increase in writing laws such that uh, co-ops are easily uh, constructed and created. Uh, one of the suggestions Professor Wolf even had was to uh, for people who lose their jobs, that instead of taking a monthly check, they, they are granted full uh, lump sum amount of funds that would have been paid out over two or three years, whatever the normal payments are. But they have to promise that they'll get together with other unemployed people and create a co-op. So there's different ways to that promote that idea, but again, promoting democracy in the workplace to strengthen democracy in our political system, because right now it's working to destroy our political system. So I'd just be curious as to you know, how the uh, panelists feel about uh, democracy in the, at the workplace. Thank you. Thank you for that, Andy. I'm actually going to go to one more person before we go back to the panel. I'd like to call on my co-producer, co-producer of Shelter and Solidarity, uh, Seren Mudliar, who always has a thoughtful comment, though he's often on the other side of the camera. Seren, are you there? Seren may be doing a technical. There he is. Yep, he's busy trying to find his unmute button. Um, so I. I have a, a different kind of question, and uh, friends of mine will probably be shocked at the point that I'd like to make. Um, 
I'm really impressed by the work, not of the Democratic Party, but of the Democratic Party's grassroots and the people doing the getting out of the vote amid a, a COVID crisis, and also people who've managed to surge the vote from 60% to 66%. That's actually a huge surge, given that we have a COVID crisis. They also uh, produced something that was quite miraculous, right? They moved the country to voting by mail. Uh, something that uh, definitely wasn't the predominant form of uh, voting. So they, they, the Democratic Party grassroots achieved a revolution at the polls in some respects. Take, uh, add that to the fact that we also have a situation where the right wing believes that there's an active revolution, French Revolution style revolution happening in the United States right now. They believe that we're coming to get them. And so I think that under these conditions, this is a very unusual election and that the, the current stalemate at the polls, uh, which might result in a squeak through victory for, for uh, Biden, uh, should be seen as something masking, uh, um, something much greater churning under the surface. So I, I'd really like to get the, uh, the panelists' response to, to the way I framed uh, what's happened in the last few days. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Saran. As usual, really connecting the, the logistics, the politics, the surface and the depths. Uh, so and we had a lot there, but I mean, there's a question about election integrity and, and Jill, I'm mean, very interested in your experiences on this front, you know, in your Green Party work, kind of calling for things that Democrats wouldn't even, the question of workplace democracy or extending democracy beyond the workplace. Uh, this question of get out the vote and vote by mail and and and, and everything else Saren said, I won't even try to repeat. Um, yeah, who would like to take it? Uh, should we go in order? Can we go to you for at least one question was kind of directly addressed to you, Jill, uh, or at least one comment. So maybe we can go to you first and then we'll go to Liza. Sure. Um, yeah, so thanks everybody for all those good comments. Um, and Gloria, your, your question about election integrity, you know, the Greens have always fought for uh, counting every vote. Um, we've supported recounts uh, when candidates who stood to benefit from them uh, did not, uh, John Kerry in what, 2004, and then uh, Hillary Clinton in, in 2016. Uh, we were the ones who were calling for the recounts when there were, uh, red flags that there may have been uh, errors or impropriety or hacking and so on. And basically the recount was shut down. So, you know, it affirmed that the system uh, is very averse to transparency and accountability, um, you know, and recounts as we largely know them now are very hampered by uh, uh, the electronic basis of, of counting, even the optical scanners, you know, um, we have helped push the notion that we need to have paper ballots. You have to have uh, a paper record. And that has been an important advancement, but they're still counted by electronics, which should also be held to a much higher level uh, of scrutiny. And it's, uh, you know, there is not a simple solution. In fact, we fought for four years and finally just won uh, a, a lawsuit that came out of the recount that will allow us to actually inspect uh, the electronics of uh, voting machines in our election, which means 
in 2016. So they've been, some of them have been replaced by other machines and other software, but at least it's, it's a higher standard and it helps to raise the bar. So um, there's only so far that we can go, but it's, you know, it's important that every vote be counted, that there be actually not recounts, but in fact, built in uh, what are called risk limiting audits so that there's uh, essentially a cross check against the paper record in every election. This should be standard. It shouldn't be in the hands of candidates who then have to fork over millions of dollars in order to verify the vote. Verification should just be part of the process. But that's another issue. We're not gonna solve that uh, in this election. Um, and I'll just say, you know, it's an important issue. It demonstrates where the Greens have been willing to stand up and get ridiculed and, and attacked for daring to advance that. And um, uh, yeah, I, I appreciate uh, all the comments. And I, you know, I just wanna say there's sort of a, uh, an, an undercurrent question in all of this, which I think is the question of how do we as different uh, political um, entities, how do we cooperate better, especially on elections? You know, how do we help advance all of this stuff at the local level by getting to critical mass together? Because we're obviously much stronger together. The system tries to separate us. Ranked choice voting is one really critical democracy advancement that allows uh, different political entities that are on the left that are independent of corporate money and the duopoly, it allows us to actually work together in real time. There are so many elections right now where we have candidates running with a little bit of coordination and um, uh, planning, we could provide really critical boost to each other. And I think that's that's a question that we can solve, you know, that's in our hands as uh, the DSA, as the Green Party, as Socialist Alternative, um, as other independent progressives, that's something we can do. And, you know, I think uh, it's just really important for us to grapple with that because we're here at the table right now. Great. Thank you, Jill. Liza, do you want to pick up? There's a lot on the table right now. <laughs> I know there is a lot. Um, um, well, actually, I was, I was actually thinking about, um, um, Soren's point um, that I, and and thank you, Jill, for uh, for highlighting that that great work um, that that you've done on this. Um, and and I was, but I was also thinking that Soren's point about the widespread engagement um, in this election in in the get out the vote efforts. You know, as we were all talking about, you know, you know, how do we save our democracy and all the different things and. You know there are there are you know huge um, huge changes that we need to make in order to protect um, our democracy. Um, but at the same time, one of them is um, people participating in it, and these um, these massive get out the vote efforts. You know, even though they were for Joe Biden um, because that was the way to stop Trump, um, were. Um, they were they were very impressive, and I kept thinking I, I kept thinking I haven't yet seen a statistic on how many people um, participated in through very many many different kinds of organizations. 
um, in, um, um, in getting out the vote and in trying to defeat Trump. But I think that, um, that those efforts absolutely made the difference. Um, and um, that, um, that that is, is sort of, um, you know, if we're looking for vital signs in our democracy on life support as um, to continue Jill's metaphor, um, that might be one vital sign, you know, that, um, that people are, um, that people are participating in it, not just by voting, no matter how much the sort of corporate Democrats try to reduce participation to vote, you know, just vote, you know, that's the, that, that's the most important thing. Um, but in fact, people um, are doing the more important work of, um, of persuasion and, you know, talking to each other about it, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the mail-in ballot, I wonder, you know, are we? Could this become a new norm? I mean, what and what? What are the implications for American democracy if if voter turnout is is more like seventy percent, you know, than 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 fifty or less, just in terms of the possibilities of more working class participation, et cetera? Uh, ben and David, I mean, you want to re reply to some things that are on the table? Uh, there's again, so before we take a, a, at least one more round of of our audience comments. Yeah. So. I'll go back actually to what Gloria raised, where she started off with the question of organization and uh, cohorts and generations. Um, it's something that I have not studied empirically, but I have noticed as somebody who has been very engaged in campus organizing for decades. I pay a lot of attention to campus organizing and student movements um, that uh, the forms of organizing have changed radically. Many of us, probably all of us, have noticed this to some extent, uh, one extent or another. Uh, I certainly recall coming up in the 1980s and 90s um, meetings that would seem to be you know, going from seven in the morning until two in the morning <laughs> as, a, as a youth, as a campus activist. Um, looking at student organizations on college campuses today, um, they don't have meetings like that anymore. Uh, when you have a mass demonstration, when you had the Million Student March a few years ago, a pretty significant mobilization before, between Jill's campaign and Bernie's first campaign, Jill's first campaign and Bernie's first campaign for to end uh, student debt, to abolish student debt, abolish tuition, um, that didn't come about through mass organizations, right? Um, and something very significant that the left has not talked about at all is that we no longer have a national student organization in the United States. The United States Student Association collapsed recently. Mm -hmm. That is incredible and it's bad. I mean, there's no way to say that's a good thing. It's a bad thing, whatever critiques people might've had of, of, of the USSA in the past. Um, so I, 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 I would say two things. I would say, despite the fact that organizational capacity for this vital sector is clearly much lesser than it used to be, right? We also have seen the kind of go TV, but also other types of mobilizing efforts that Liza was just speaking to and that I think Sarin was alluding to. And I would love to hear more from Sarin to expand on his thesis there. Um, because, uh, and, and so what, how can we, you know, address the organizational deficiencies, which I would argue if we wanted to get into it in greater depth are deficiencies that must be addressed if we're going to convert and uh, convert you know uh, our sort of our demands into material gains we need organization right um, and how do we bring that 
sort of organizational capacity into engagement with the mobilization capacity that's there right now. Um, so those are those are important questions. Um, and then the final thing I'll just say, and uh, like I said, I'd like to hear more from Sarin if he's willing uh, in the next round. Um, I do think that we are going into the most significant period of of mobilization. Uh, of certainly of my lifetime and probably maybe of lifetime of any except for Victor Wallace and a few other people that may remember, uh, you know, the 1930s and 40s, right, um, uh, who I see here. Um, so that's exciting. We need to be prepared to take advantage of that. Uh, so I do feel optimistic. Pass. Uh, I'm going to have to call on Victor Wallace in, in a few minutes to, to to correct the record here, but uh, but uh, but no, Ben. I mean, powerful comments. Victor, one of our you know one of our great uh, frequent participators is on uh, is on the call. I hope Victor, we will get you in here at some point. Let's go to David, and then if Seren's willing, let's let it, let's go back to Seren. Then we'll take comments from from uh, Marilyn um, and from our other co-producer Mark uh, Mark Soderstrom. Uh, David, let's go to you first before we take one last round of at least one more round of of comments. Sure. So there's a lot to chew on, um, so I'll be, I'll just go hit a few different points. Um, just on the point about uh, Richard Wolff and industrial democracy, you know, I mean, what attracted me and what made me a democratic socialist is I think, you know, the workplaces should be democratic, <laughs> not just fighting for society. But that's why I think, but I think we can't really get there until we deal with that there's unions are at a historically low Point. And workers need to go through struggle together, you know, to understand what you can actually have democratic control of the workplace. And I think until we really deal with that union density is so low, it's very hard for working people and I think people in general to imagine a more democratic control of the economy. So that's why for me, I think building the labor movement, making it more democratic is very key to that. Um, you know, I just want to give it some color, an anecdote to what Ben was talking about student movement. So Ben was one of the about 200 people, and I thank him, who filled out a survey I did about the history of the DSAU section that I co-wrote for the upcoming uh, Encyclopedia of the American Left second edition. And one of the things I'm going to, I'm going to do a presentation for students, and one of the elements I really want these students to get is like, it's wonderful that the DSAU section called the Young Democratic Socialists of America has 130 chapters. I mean, that's 10 times bigger than when live that when Liza and I were working on student conferences when I was the first, when I was the youth organizer. But that's because the United States Student Association collapsed, as Ben said, that represented, they didn't have 1.2 million members, but they represented 1.2 million students through covering and the International Socialist Organization. So DSA has kind of had to fill this, mm. not through incompletely fill this role. And so that's why when you talk to the DSA students, they'll give you revolutionary rhetoric that makes my dissent reading self, you know, cringe sometimes. But then when I asked them, so what's the program you're doing? Oh, we're doing COVID relief, trying to get legislation from federal government. That's something the United States Student Association would have been doing. You know, I mean, because it's because it's like deep down, they all have to actually meet their material gains and it's DSA alone itself can't do that. I mean, that's a, 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 just something we have to grapple with how students are organized right now. Um, and I think on Sarin's point, it's something I've written a bit about in dissent and Jacobin, because I used to be the political director for our revolution, Bernie's not, uh, the organization that came out of Bernie's campaign. And I looked at, you know, in the Indivisibles, the Our Revolution, DSA, specifically how they all differently related to the Democratic Party. You know, DSA gave up on realignment, kind of tries, says they're independent. Uh, 
the R revolution takes this approach where it's like the Democratic Party is bad, so we want to change it. And indivisible is much more like what I think is a continuation of Howard Dean's Democracy for America. Democratic Party is good, it just needs to get better. And so it's like how these organizations relate, I think is like, is actually more heterodox than people uh, may, and I'm about to say people here, I think in general, than people um, give it credit for. And it leads to like uneven GOTV efforts. It leads to uh, lack of coherence around actually changing the Democratic Party. So like when I went to Philadelphia to do get out the vote work with the Working Families Party, you know, it's really just a bunch of people who really want to do well, you know, who show up and are kind of like, and the WFP doesn't have the infrastructure because labor, except for Unite Here, wasn't really doing a lot, you know, to really send people to the right places. So you do a lot of standing work, you know, you feel good, but I think that's, Biden probably wouldn't have won. And I think it would have been much worse if like Unite Here and a couple of groups hadn't ignored him and <laughs> did actual like save COVID canvassing. You know, it was like, just like people need that contact that Trump was, cause he's a demagogue and doesn't care about the health of his supporters, like was actually willing He's like a general, he's like, I'm gonna lose, <laughs> I'm gonna kill 20,000 voters to mobilize 200,000. I mean, that's like probably how he thought. And that's a real thing we have to go up against. And I think like, and to Gloria's point a little bit, you know, I don't know, I'll explain a little bit of New York just cause I can't assume people know, but New York has fusion voting. So people can run, we have multiple small parties um, and the same candidate can run on multiple lines and one of the, problems with that for ranked choice voting, because we just got ranked choice voting in New York City, is it actually doesn't affect the general election. It only affects the primaries because they because people can run on different lines. So it actually does limit how we're gonna use ranked choice voting. And I mean, there's some of what I agree with Gloria was saying, some of what I didn't. What I agree, I'll start with that point, is that the go Governor Cuomo is terrible and you know really made an effort to create the definition of onerous burdens on small parties. I mean, already in our society, it's very difficult to have parties, you know, that are not the major parties. I mean, there's just, that don't even exist in other industrialized bourgeois democracies. It's just so authoritarian, semi-soft authoritarian levels. And so Cuomo like just continues that tradition of like, it used to be 50,000 votes on the gubernatorial line. And Cuomo just decided it's gonna be 130,000 or 2%, whichever is higher. <laughs> on the presidential line, you know, and it kind of forced, so, so DSA, a lot of DSA members, not the, I don't know if the organization took an official stance, went with by getting people to save the working families party who we work with. And I think that, you know, I remember at Jabari who I replaced, um, I, you know, I asked him his stat, his treasurer once, I was like, why isn't, will the Greens endorse Jabari for a state senator race? And the Green, and she said, the Greens don't endorse cross endorse the Democrats in New York. And I would say like, it takes two to tango. I think it would be much easier for DSA and there's lots of DSAers who would love to not work with the WFP as Liza and I both were scared when we were signing the letter to get to do it, how much flack we would get from DSA members. And I think if the, if the Greens would co-endorse, co cross-endorse with, if a DSA member won you know, the primary and were willing to do that, I'm sure DSA members like Julia Salazar, Jabari Brisbord would welcome the Green Party line. I mean, I think that's, I can say that with, with confidence, you know, I think, and it would, it would also force the question in DSA if the Greens were willing to do that, if they wanted to keep working with the WFP, it would heighten the contradictions, so to speak. But I think, so I'll just give that kind of comradely suggestion and to your party, you can take it what you will, but I do think there's, a, there's more opening there than people might think. Yeah. 
Sounds like this discussion of politics is actually turning into actual politics here. Uh, you know, some actual building, um, which is just great. I mean, that's kind of one thing we aspire with this space we've been creating the last half a year now. Victor Wallace's name was invoked. And I think that's a, that's the rule, right? If somebody says your name, then you get a chance to respond. Or, I mean, I've been wanting to Victor to jump in already. We'll go to Victor and then Marilyn and then back to Seren, uh, since uh, he was also invoked and, and people want to hear more about his own, his own, uh, his view here. Victor, Victor, so glad to have you back on, on Shelter and Solidarity. You gotta, you gotta unmute yourself though. Okay, sorry. Beautiful, uh, Victor. Uh, I wasn't born until 1938, so I can't speak <laughs> directly to the 30s. But what the 30s did represent was uh, the presence on the left of, of some kind of hegemonic uh, grouping to which uh, everybody gravitated. I mean, the Communist Party was at the center of it, but there were so many, there was such a penumbra, it was enormous. There was a, a kind of uh, unity. It had all the imperfections that we know about and that we can study in history. But what I've been looking for uh, is something comparable to emerge that would uh, bring together, let's say, all the different tendencies that have been active in some cases, you know, very in, in a very in very militant ways uh, throughout the society, many different constituencies, uh, many different organizations that have common uh, common appro uh, common basic aspirations, and I'm very glad to hear that uh, of steps being taken towards unity between the Green Party and other formations. Uh, the Green Party has been criticized for being too heavily concentrated on the electoral arena, and yet uh, the as we see, the establishment is constantly. Uh, making its task of even having a presence more and more onerous all the time. But there, there are all kinds of other uh, attempts, sort of moves in that direction, not only uh, for, for electoral, but for a wider type of organization. And so for a long time, I've just been hoping to uh, see uh, the development and trying to work towards the development of some kind of unified uh, left movement. Um, I, I wanted to mention a couple of other organizations right now. Uh, one, one that I like as a, as a forum for discussion is called Left Roots. Some of you may have seen that. I've, I've joined on that just for the sake of being in their regular discussions. They, they haven't done too much in the way of uh, on the ground activity, but it's, it's a useful forum. Uh, another group that I find of interest, which would be part of any uh, such uh, development, and some of you may know more about it, is the Movement for a People's Party, which, which also has attracted uh, you know, interest from a wide range of people. I, I think it, it, it might be more uh, productive ultimately to have a, a clear class orientation, but nonetheless, uh, in terms of basic aspirations, they're quite similar. And then finally, the, the one thing, uh, other thing I would mention is, is a, a kind of online activism, uh, which could develop into something more on the part of Roots Action, uh, rootsaction.org. Uh, Jill came to one of our meetings a few years ago, and others of you may, may know about it, uh, because it's taken a very strong position of, of uh, promoting a, a, uh, a position uh, highly critical of the democratic establishment, but not, nonetheless reacting strong, seeing the, the necessity of reacting strongly against the threat of fascism. And so, so uh, I personally uh, signed and got into some arguments about the uh, dump Trump, then battle Biden open letter. And I, I think, uh, Liza, I think you signed that too, didn't you? I did. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so so uh, these are some of the different uh, formations. It, it'd be great if there could be some great uh, kind of convocation of all these. And uh, I know Seren has spoken of uh, socialism and democracy sponsoring a conference that would bring together a lot of these people. I hope now that as when the dust settles uh, after all this electoral stuff, 
that this can still come about and something new and, and really with a, a major public presence can emerge. Thank you, Victor. Victor, of course, himself, the longtime um, managing editor and still an editor and contributor with Socialism and Democracy, one of the co-sponsors of this program, um, and also the author of, among other books, I have to plug, Democracy Denied, one of the most concise, accessible, and my students would testify to this, a concise, accessible, yet thoroughly radical and kind of, I think, deeply strategically minded uh, kind of take on what is not democratic about the U.S. system, both politics, economy, uh, and beyond, a really, I think, a must read. For those of you who are in the business of trying to turn people on to this stuff, uh, you know, kind of gateway drugs for revolutionary thought, you know, Victor Wallace, put him on your list if he's not already. Thank, Thank you, you Victor. Um, I misspoke before. We actually have Marilyn. We have Marilyn, Mark, and Seren. So, uh, and I think after this, we'll probably go, we're getting near two hours. We'll go to our, 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 our guests for final comments and we'll wrap up and, and plug our next show. Marilyn? Just a quick comment um, to add a little bit to what I put in the chat, and that is, I, 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 in this discussion, I think the role of white supremacy and racism in the election of uh, Trump the first time and now in his voters is really underplayed. And Joe, like what you talked about, Juan's analysis, he talked about all the underperforming white people who mm -hmm. voted for Trump, including white women. I don't know that he gave the data, which, which I'd like to see, but in the hopeful, based on um, what you said, Seren, about people, I was very impressed with Linda Saussur when after Biden, I mean, not just that they had no, virtually no Arab Americans and Muslim Americans in that convention, which had tons of other people of color, but he directly um, made terrible comments about her. And she saw the bigger picture of getting rid of Trump. And, you know, a lot of Muslim and Arab American groups worked really hard to get rid of Trump. And I think that's very impressive. And one final comment is um, an organization that I just became aware of in this election round, the Movement Voter Project which probably people know about, they, uh, they mainly raise money. I mean, that's... Oh, Marilyn, I think you froze. Marilyn, I don't, Marilyn, I don't know if you could, you could hear us. I'm not seeing you or hearing you, at least not seeing you move. I think we might have to come back to Marilyn there, but, and hopefully we can get her to complete the thought. But my... Okay. You hear Marilyn, me we lost you for about uh, 20 seconds oh. there. Can you back up a couple sentences? Thank you. Just the Movement Voter Project, which I recently became aware of, and they mainly raise money. That's the stuff I did with a few friends with them. But they give money to all these groups on the ground, mostly led by young people of color. And they're issue-oriented groups that just for the electoral cycle, they'll work for candidates who will support their issues. But then they go back to their issues and making the candidates that win, um, you know, uh, pay up. So it's, it's groups that are on the ground all the time. And they did an enormous amount of work um, in this little thin margin that maybe Biden will win with. So anyway, yeah. that's all. But, but let's not forget about 
racism because that's like such a big factor. Absolutely, Marilyn. Thank you for for not letting that slip. Uh, I think it's. I think many of us are thinking about it, but it's important to not just think it to, to, to make sure it's 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 said and it's it's uh, it's 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 on our minds. Uh, let's bring in Mark and and Seren, and then again back to the panel for uh, closing comments. I think, uh, if, unless there's anything else explicit in the in the uh, yeah in the queue. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Let's go to Mark. Oh, thank you, Joe. This is sort of a. a a response to what was almost an off-the-cuff comment by Ben earlier, um, having Wisconsin having played such an important role in the last two elections and uh, being from Minnesota myself, I sort of appreciated his comment that Bernie probably would have won in, in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin. And I tend to sort of link that to a, a tradition of sort of populist participatory politics in the region, both economic as well as electoral. Um, and those politics have sort of enabled candidates like Ilan Omar, Karen Clark, Paul Wellstone, Keith Ellison. But uh, they've also, you know, enabled Scott Walker and Jesse Ventura and Rod Grams and Joe McCarthy, right, Senator from Wisconsin, um, you know, in opposition to Bob LaFollette right, this wonderful dichotomy that I think is informative also to the larger elections that we're seeing now. Um, and I, if this interests you, by the way, in two weeks, we're going to have a show dedicated to populism with a historian of the upper Midwest, Mike Lansing, November 19th, please come back. But I would love if Ben, and I see Liza nodding here quite vigorously, if you would sort of follow up on, on that tension around that, that sort of populist left populist right um, pivot. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Actually, there was one overlooked uh, speaker in the queue. Before we go to Seren, I give Seren the last word on this round. Uh, let's go to, I'd like to go to Mike. Mike had a, a something you wanted to share, I think. Uh, Mike, thanks, thanks for being patient. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm going to reinforce a couple things that have been said already. Uh, uh, I, I think the left is quite weak right now. Um, and uh, one of the groups I belong to is the Boston May Day Coalition, which includes communists, socialists, anti-capitalists, and anarchists. I think we need to really build left uh, unity. Um, I admire um, uh, DSA for its uh, openness to allowing different tendencies within the organization. And um, quite a bit of the independent left um, uh, is, you can't see much of it. I can't see much of a difference between them. And yet they all belong to their very, very tiny organization. Um, so I think we need to build left unity. I also want to uh, reinforce what uh, Victor said. I, I believe that I'm with the Green, Green Rainbow Party in Massachusetts, that independent political uh, parties are very, very important. And uh, Victor was talking about movement for a new party. I'm with the Green Rainbow Party. I think our, our, our success is that we have survived, uh, but we're tiny. We're very, very tiny. Uh, and also DSA is uh, talking about breaking from the uh, 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 
the uh, from the Democratic Party, and there there are groups within it who are advocating for a Democratic Socialist Party. So uh, I think this is the time for a regroupment and realignments and rebuilding the left. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. I'm glad I'm glad we did. I didn't overlook you. Sorry about taking so long. Really important issues there. Seren, let's go back to you before we give our great panel a, a last chance to respond and contribute. Yeah, I certainly don't want to take too much time from, from our panelists. Uh, I, I just say the following. Uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of very co correct soul searching about how the polls got this election wrong. But we should also look at the states where they generally got it right. You know, surprisingly, Minnesota is one of them. Arizona is another one of them. And the reason they got it right is more interesting to me, uh, which is that there were very strong grassroots organizations that were able to counter the right wing. And these people, in spite of having a lackluster candidate, were able to get out the vote for, for this person. The fact that Arizona is potentially in the so-called blue camp right now is a result of actual grassroots work done on a block by block basis. Now, all of us are very comfortable talking about strategy and about vision, but block by block work, get out the vote work, a smaller number of us are probably used to thinking about and making that happen. And so I think that, and, and, I, and I'm a bit more optimistic than Mike is, that there is a left out there that's currently ensconced within the Democratic Party, bigger than DSA, larger than DSA by orders of magnitude, I think, but still more tied to the Democratic Party and who DSA needs to reach out to. So just as much as there's a, a large number of leftists outside of DSA that need to reach into DSA, I think DSA has to reach out to mass organizations that have neutralized Trump. The people like uh, when Madeline mentioned the Movement Voter Project, right? Uh, we're talking about people who do block by block mobilizing in places like Milwaukee and and the such and such, and we need to figure out how we can talk with those kinds of people who are, uh, you know, direct victims of racism, but also taking very pragmatic steps to neutralize it on the ground. I'll leave it there. Thanks, Ren. So much in so few words. Admirable. Um, wish I could do that. All right. Um, so let's get uh, closing. Oh. Um, yeah, Mark already went. So let's let's take it back to the panel. I mean, you have lots to choose from, and and also, you know, you can respond. But also, if you just want to leave us with a few words of your own, other other thoughts you have on on this moment and looking forward out of it. I mean, certainly there's a, a theme of left unity coming through here, and what does that mean? I mean, I think that deserves a show in itself. How to actually build left unity in practice, not just in words, but but what we have now is just a few little space for a few more words. So, uh, Jill, you go first. I'll be really brief. Um, you know, great conversation, and I hope it's uh, the beginning of a much longer and um, uh, structured conversation. And I think uh, uh, the suggestion that we aim for a conference to build left unity, some of us have been a part of this, you know, of these efforts uh, for some years. And um, uh, there have been several uh, formations. Victor, I know we've tried to do that here in the Boston area. It's been kind of a stop and go thing. We haven't done it in a while. And I think this is a really good time. You know, I think there was so much uh, um, optimism around the uh, Sanders movement within the Democratic Party. It's sort of 
displaced the uh, multi-partisan movement for, uh, for left unity because there was the feeling that uh, Sanders was gonna break through, but we see where that has gone, you know. Um, progressives, you know, were completely locked out of the Democratic convention in the same way that they will be locked out of a Biden administration as well. And I think there is, you know, there's, uh, that's really something that has to be grappled with. The, um, uh, what shall we say, you know, uh, political repression within the Democratic Party is not making steps forward, although progressives are doing very important things, but the, um, the efforts to silence progressives within the Democratic Party are only strengthening and uh, kind of gaining traction, uh, especially with Biden's victory now. So, you know, and, and his ability to uh, uh, sort of uh, intimidate people uh, through the, you know, the spoiler fears and all that, you know, to, to uh, demand a lot of support for his campaign without any demands having been made on him, you know, we go into the next administration with no, no traction whatsoever on the Biden administration or the Democratic Party. So I think, uh, I think ranked choice voting sort of cuts through all of that because it allows people to maintain their allegiance to the party if they want to do that, but also to work collaboratively in the electoral arena. So I think that's really important. I would really like to see ranked choice voting as, you know, as a local measure and at the state level uh, and beyond. And for that to be a priority along with uh, advancing a conference you know, as soon as we think we can do it for left unity. Um, and it would be great if there's a way we can also bring in the social movements here, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and the anti-police violence movement, climate strike, uh, Extinction Rebellion, the student movement, et cetera, the movements on the ground, you know, it'd be great to incorporate them into this um, movement for left unity. So I, uh, I look forward to our following up on this. Terrific, Jill. We'll, we'll be sure to, to, to quote that line back to you and we'll be back in touch to, to get you back on this show and, and working on this, uh, this broader project. Sounds great. Uh, Liza, let's go next to you and then, and then Ben. Um, well, I'll be, um, I'll be very brief because um, I think I've said a lot of things, uh, but, but um, and, and everyone else has been so interesting. Um, but um, I, I think um, um, to the speaker who, um, who noted the, ten the left right populist um, tension, I think, um, I mean, I, I think we're, we're seeing that as really kind of a national conflict right now. Um, and, um, and that, um, you know, the, the rise of these um, right wing populists is very scary. Um, but in some ways, it, you know, we notice that, um, you know, we also um, kind of trigger them by making gains, you know, so we had, you know, the Black Lives Matter uprisings in the street, um, you know, and, um, and, this, and this massive um, and, um, and wonderful social movement. And, in, and, some, and, in, in, and so, 
you know, we're going to see these white supremacists um, organizing in response. I mean, you know, when, you know, we have um, sort of socialist language and socialist ideas becoming more explicit in the discourse, you know, as we make, you know, you know, we, we, we make some gains, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is in Congress, you know, um, and everyone knows, every, everyone, you know, thinks of her as a socialist. Um, and, um, and so, you know, we see these reactionary, um, you know, these reactionary petty bourgeois forces um, in the streets, um, you know, rioting against the idea of socialism, you know, I mean, and, and I think, um, you know, in, 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 in some sense, there, there is no real solution to that problem. I mean, it's just, you know, that, um, that progressive movements do in the United States and we're seeing around the world um, do um, um, are met with um, reactionary movements in response and um, we just have to fight back. You know, I mean, you know, there's, there, there, there you know, there, we're, we're going, we are going to keep seeing um, th these, these reactionary movements. And in some sense, I mean, somebody mentioned Corey Robbins' book, The Reactionary Mind, earlier. I mean, you know, go, going, going back to that, I mean, it is, you know, re reaction is, re reaction is in response to progress, is response to um, progressives organizing we feel that the left is weak, but they don't see it that way. They're very alarmed and they're organizing in response, you know, and, um, and we are weak compared to what we'd like to be, but we're gaining in strength enough, um, you know, to upset them. And that's why they're out there with their um, scary racist caravans. Thank you, Liza. I'm going to take this moment also to plug our next show, which is on November 19th. We actually have a show on populism, peril or promise in U.S. Po politics. Say that three times fast. Um, pe populism, peril or promise in U.S. politics. Uh, we'll have uh, Mike Lansing, author of Insurgent Democracy, um, and he'll be on for the hour. Thanks to co-producer Mark Soderstrom for organizing that show. That's in two weeks. We'd love to have you all back for that conversation as we think about, and I know this, this question of left versus quote unquote right populism, I've uh, been following through the work of Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald and others. I think it's a really important question actually. And I think Mike will help us get into that in a, in a, in a depth that we couldn't get into on our own. I hope many of you can, can join us in two weeks. Uh, let's go to Ben and David for final words. So first of all, I just want to say thank you to Joe and to the whole team that puts this together. I know it's a lot of work, and I think it's clearly meaningful to a lot of people to be able to have these conversations. So this is a form of organizing, and thank you for that. Um, I also, uh, I'll just address the populism question, because I am a Wisconsinite. I'm not born there, but 31 years there. Um, you know, I'll answer in two directions, uh, or in two, sort of along two lines. One is, um, you know, as uh, somebody who came up in the Wisconsin progressive tradition, uh, the idea that there's such a thing as right-wing populism is kind of anathema to me. Um, you know, populism at its origins was essentially the uh, organizing grounds for socialism. It's where the Socialist Party came out of, right? Um, but on the other hand, in terms of populism as a form of rhetoric, uh, clearly, you know, that is very powerful. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, Walker, MacArthur, uh, Tommy Thompson, uh, you know, uh, and Mac Joseph McCarthy, 
uh, were uh, people who engaged in a form of rhetoric in a form of very paternalistic um, misogynist organizing. I mean, I actually think you know, it, it, white supremacy needs to be brought forward, and I put this in the comments, but I think misogyny needs to be brought forward uh, even more often because uh, I really think that it's the um, sort of the cult of domination that's at the center of, of the politics of, of authoritarian movements. Um, whereas so-called left populism is uh, a valor, it's democratic, it's a valorization of the people and of the capacity of all kinds of people to come across come together across borders and, and, and build a, a commonwealth that we all share, right? So I actually, um, I always bristle when I see academic conferences about populism that talk of right populism, it's, it's, um, it's, it's an oxymoron. So let's have more of the rhetoric, but let's have more of the form, uh, the real practice of building people power. And, uh, and, and, and I, I enjoyed this conversation with all of you. Thank you so much, Ben. It's great to have you back on, on the show again. And thanks for those comments. David? Um, so I'll just repeat one thing because I think it came up again. And uh, the first thing I said, which I really want to leave everyone to leave with this, that's the only thing they take from me is that um, I reject the two notions that I brought up earlier. One is that the exit poll showing increased people of color support for Trump repudiates that racism was this narrative or kind of shows um, that we should be just focusing on class rhetoric. And if that had happened, you know, it would have caused Biden to do better. I think well, what I said originally, and I'll say again, is that we have to understand that we live in a multiracial society and it's more of a caste system. So, you know, whites are at the top and whites can use that and people, and, and they can pit minority people of color against each other. People of color aren't, can be racist against each other too in that caste system. and it, and so I just want, I want people to avoid those simple answers because you can, and the, I didn't mention them, but the Proud Boys, you know, which is one of the new fascistic organizations is multiracial. I mean, it just is. I mean, it's, it's and it's like how you use misogyny and racism and that caste hierarchy is very important. Um, so our counter has to be building a multiracial, you know, democracy, social democracy that will become a democratic socialist society and like but what I my internal struggles in DSA have always been that you know I think there's this pejorative um and NGO nonprofit used in a nasty way which sometimes there's nonprofits who don't do great stuff but lots of nonprofits do represent communities that don't look like DSA <laughs> the majority of DSA you know and I think that it's not good that DSA was not part of a lot of the anti-Trump work that involved people of color led organizations. It's a criticism, Liza and I signed a letter, you know, encouraging people, DSAers to do anti-Trump work that was criticized, you know, and I felt, and I just, I'm probably gonna, and I just defended it until, and I still do saying like, we were just, we were doing what organizations were doing and people needed to see, you know, people out there. And I, I fear as always, you know, this is just a broad fear and the last thing I'll say is like, you know, we, there's this moment that where people really are in motion. And there are people who have been in motion who are doing stuff, communities of color. And we have to be in solidarity with them and working, struggling with us all, alongside them. People are doing that, but there's always this easiness of just kind of just focusing on what we're gonna do because there's a lot of work to be done, uh, but I think it'll be better done collectively. So that's all I know that. Thank you so much, David. Thanks again to all of our great guests today, Jill Stein, Liza Featherstone, Ben Mansky, David Duhalde. 
Um, and uh, really a rich conversation. Thanks to everyone who made contributions. I'm gonna keep my closing remarks very short, but I just wanna cite one, one uh, st statement I think uh, that, that might, be, might be inspiring or useful, which is, I mean, I feel like I, I, I see hope in the fact that many parts of the left I'm in touch with anyway, seem to be coming around to an approach that's, that, that puts beyond, you know, it seems to be moving beyond a certain kind of sectarian or fragmentation that has often limited us and, and moving towards, uh, you know, a line more along the lines of trying to unite with strengths to overcome weaknesses rather than just kind of, you know, focusing on weaknesses or perceived weaknesses to undermine strengths, you know, which it seems to me like, uh, you know, if I can sum up, you know, what does it mean to try to build unity without sacrificing your fundamental beliefs? I think we, we need that more than ever. And I think, you know, if there's one virtue of going up against a, a, a monstrous figure like Trump it, it's, and, and, the, and the movement that he, that he is the, the toxic tip of, um, it's, it's perhaps that it's, it might remind us uh, that we need to be humble and we need to be able to relate to people, even if they're not starting in the same place we are, because we really need each other if we're going to get this shit done. Uh, in any way or even come close. So thank you all for being here. I mean, I know it's two hours on a Thursday night when we probably didn't get any sleep on Tuesday and we might not get any tonight or whatever, or, you know, so I, you know, stay strong as we say on, on this show, uh, stay safe, stay engaged and stay together in all the meanings of that word. Solidarity. Together. Uh, I want to thank my co-producers, Seren Mudliar, Mark Soderstrom, Linda Liu, Kira Mudliar, uh, Tim Sheard, and um, and our sponsoring organizations already mentioned Community Church of Boston, Socialism and Democracy, a journal, a research journal, peer-reviewed research journal for activists and organizers, uh, as well as Encuentro Cinco, affectionately known as E5, a hub for organizing in the center of downtown Boston, Hardball Press, a publisher especially of working class stories, but also of children's fiction and all kinds of stuff. Check it out. That's Hardball Press. Uh, what else am I forgetting, folks? Uh, I'm burned out, taught four classes today, and then did this show. Um, I guess that's about it, except to say two weeks from now, we'll do another show on populism with Mike Lansing. Please be back with, with us. Same Zoom play, same Zoom time, 7 p.m. Thursday nights, Eastern Standard. Shelter and solidarity, folks. Stay safe and see you next time. <laughs>